A reading from the Letter to the Romans, chapter 12. Your love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Love one another with affection of brothers and sisters. Try to outdo one another in showing respect. Do not grow slack, but be fervent in spirit. The one you serve is Christ. Rejoice in hope. Be patient under trial. Persevere in prayer. Look on the needs of God's holy people as your own. Be generous in offering hospitality. Bless your persecutors. Bless and don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Have the same attitude toward everyone. Do not be condescending to those who aren't as well off as you. Don't be conceited. Don't repay evil with evil. Be concerned with the highest ideal in the eyes of all people. Do all you can to be at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge. Leave room, my friends, for God's wrath. To quote scripture, vengeance is mine. I will pay them back, says our God. But there is more. As the proverb says, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals upon their heads. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by doing good. This is one of our sacred teachings. Thanks be to God. I was driving home from a hardware store along the interstate when I first heard the story of Megan Phelps Roper. It had been a week of stark political divisions, nothing new, not unlike most weeks in recent history. And I was listening to a new podcast called The Confessional by Pastor Nadia Boltzweber. I listened in as Boltzweber explained that she was inviting guests to recount stories of themselves at their worst and asking them to look upon them with redemptive eyes. Trying to ignore the pro-God, pro-gun bumper sticker in front of me, I heard her introduce her first guest, Megan Phelps Roper. The name rung a vague bell in the back of my mind, and as she told her story, it became apparent why. Phelps Roper was born into a close-knit family in Topeka, Kansas in the mid-80s, and from the moment of her birth, she was, as many of us are, swept up into the religious stories and anxieties of her parents and grandparents. The difference, however, between her experience and ours was that her grandfather was the Reverend Fred Phelps, the founding pastor of the infamous Westboro Baptist Church. Now, we all know Westboro, so I won't belabor the point. They're a caricature of the biases and hateful rhetoric of American culture wars. Their politics and theology so extreme that even far-right politicians squirm when they show up on the news cycle. For a podcast about people at their worst, I thought, I didn't think Boltzweber could have chosen a more perfect person to start. I listened as Megan Phelps Roper recounted what it was like for her being born into a family that routinely protested funerals and churches, singing and holding signs claiming that the families deserved the tragedy that had befallen them. She recounted the fervent experiences of laughing and dancing around counter-protesters to be sure they would be seen by mourning families, parents, and children, certain all the while that the all-powerful and all-angry God of righteousness 
was on their side. But here's something about her you might not know. In 2012, Megan Phelps Roper, ultra-conservative religious fundamentalist, changed her mind. At great personal cost, in November of that year, she made the choice to walk away from everything. Now, if you're anything like me, there is one question burning in your mind right now, and that is, how? In a world that seems more interested in digging in its heels than learning that we may be wrong, more interested in attacking the other team than examining ourselves, what happened to this woman that was actually effective in leading her to authentically change her mind? What is it that actually worked? Rather than tell her story myself, one of the benefits of this platform is that I can let her tell you herself. When did you start to feel unnerved by what you and your family were doing at these protests? I mean, it started for me with these conversations on Twitter. I was there to spread Westboro's message. And, you know, I was convinced that was the best thing for me to do with my, with my time and energy and this new tool that God had created for us to spread his message. And so you start tweeting, God hates f***s, you know, we should pray for more dead soldiers, all of the Westboro stuff. Yes. We had to show that even in the face of so much hatred, and even when it's things like death threats and rape threats, we had to show that we were unmoved by it. And the way we did that was by laughing. And so my tweeting took on that kind of jocular tone too. And I think that's part of what a lot, what helped outsiders like recognize like, oh, she's just a um, but yeah, so those, and they just, they allowed other people to see me as a human. And so it, that enabled this, this conversation. We were curious. I was curious about them and they were curious about me. Like as a person, is that right? Yeah. As a person. How did that show up? So for instance, most people, they weren't interested in my experience as a member of Westboro. I mean, as a protester, they wanted to talk about the things that I believed that showed that I was a terrible person. But, you know, sometimes they would ask me like, you know, everybody hates you. That must be so hard or, you know, things like that. I mean, they're, they're clearly showing interest in my experience as a human being and not just what Westboro believes. The thing I just, I find really amazing is that it seems like if somebody has ideas that we think are really harmful or dangerous, or they have actions that hurt other people, it feels like it is our responsibility to fight back and to call them out and to have this very accusational tone. And to only see them as those horrible things. And so the thing I th is so interesting to me about your story of you changing and your thinking changing is that it didn't happen as a result of people yelling at you on Twitter. It happened as a result of people having compassion for you and curiosity about you. Megan Phelps Roper did not change her mind because enough people yelled at her. She didn't change her mind because she was shamed into doing so. She didn't change her mind because of well-reasoned or logical arguments. She changed her mind because someone had the courage to show curiosity and compassion. 
she changed because just for a moment, someone was able to set aside their judgment of the role she was playing and say to her, everyone is yelling at you. That's got to be so hard. Are you okay? And that changed everything. When I heard this story, I was struck with a familiar pang. Though far less extreme, I thought of my own journey and how I too had changed my mind really only because of the curiosity and compassion of those around me. I had let go of my narrow-minded and fear-based assumptions largely because of those willing to ask me how I was feeling and talk about theology or politics without making me feel like I should be ashamed. Driving along the interstate, I felt a sense of clarity and radiant hope. I wondered if there is a hope for the transformation of this world. Isn't this it? Bless your enemies, Paul writes to the church at Rome, which is split into two opposing parties that seem hell-bent on hating each other. I know that you want to curse them, he writes, but if you want to change anything, you must bless them. I know you want to repay their evil with evil, but that will only push you deeper into your resentments. No one's mind will change. Instead, meet evil with good. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them drink. And when you do this, they might remember your humanity, feel the burn of guilt at how they have behaved and be transformed by love. Do not fight hate with hate, he writes. Overcome hate with good. The perennial wisdom of these words leaves me in awe. Over 2,000 years, it was as though they were written about Megan Phelps Roper's story or about my own story. It is a truth hidden since the beginning of time that kindness, not judgment, disarms us and clears the path for transformation. So then what is it time and time again that convinces us that this isn't true? What is this lie that calls for judgment and calls for dominance? And how might we shine the light of truth on it? How can we become the kind of people for whom this disarming kindness is possible, natural even? This is a question that asks us to turn our attention from Topeka, Kansas to the streets of Detroit, Michigan. Marshall Rosenberg was born in the mid-30s to Jewish parents into an impoverished and unstable home. In June of 1943, when he was nine years old, his family moved to Detroit, and one week later, the city erupted into chaos. The Detroit race riots, the combustion of a powder keg of systemic racism, xenophobic social tension, and limited wartime resources left 433 wounded and 34 dead. And from his living room window, locked inside his home for three days, nine-year-old Marshall Rosenberg had a front row seat. 
And during those formative days, the seed of a question was planted in Rosenberg's mind. It was a seed that grew and sprouted as he experienced the harsh anti-Semitism that waited for him at school each day. It was the seed of a question that would shape the trajectory of his life. Why do we do this to each other? What is it in us that leads us to disconnect from our compassionate nature and leads us to believe instead that we have to behave violently and coercively? Driven by these questions, Rosenberg went into the field of psychotherapy and completed a PhD in clinical psychology. And after some time, he would come to pioneer a new field of study that he would call nonviolent communication. And it is there that we can find a key to answer our question. Dr. Rosenberg's premise is surprisingly simple. We are evolved to communicate through a language of judgment. We communicate with a logic that I am right, you are wrong, and I must win so that I can be in charge. We defend ourselves, reacting with the impulse to withdraw or attack. Does this not sound familiar? But what would happen, Rosenberg studied, if we could learn a new language? What would happen if we could train ourselves to recognize when we're stepping into that pattern and instead refocused our attention on curiosity? Specifically, what if we focused our attention on two particular questions? How are we feeling? And what is the need not being met in us that gives rise to that feeling. And likewise, what are they feeling? And what is the need not being met in them that gave rise to that feeling? And from there, we would be able to communicate in a whole new way. Rather than jumping to being defensive or telling the other person why they're wrong, we'd try to understand. We'd say something like, it sounds like when this happens, you're feeling angry because your need for safety is not being met. Is that right? And Rosenberg found that the simple experience of hearing their feelings and needs reflected back to them disarmed the ego and would help them hear whatever we needed to say next. Well, when I see this, I feel this way because this need of not mine is not being met. In his book, Dr. Rosenberg shares the following story. A student of nonviolent communication volunteering at a food bank was shocked when an elderly coworker burst out from behind her newspaper and said, what we need to do in this country is bring back the stigma of illegitimacy. Now you're probably having a reaction right now. You're probably judging this woman's outburst as wrong and dangerous. There are probably things you want to say about shame and harm, especially if she had expressed this opinion in the form of a Facebook post. Or maybe you'd silently judge her, uh, judge the woman as ignorant, and then withdraw until later when you could process your feelings in private. The student, however, chose to get curious about the woman's feelings and needs. Are you reading something in the paper about teenage pregnancies, she asked. Yes, her coworker responded. It's unbelievable how many of them are doing it. The student tried to listen for the woman's feelings and unmet needs or values giving rise to it. I want to understand better, the student said. Are you feeling 
alarmed because you would like kids to have stable families? Of course, the woman replied. My father would have killed me if I'd done anything like that. And the student said, so it sounds like you're annoyed that there is no fear of punishment for girls who get pregnant these days. Well, the co-worker said, at least fear and punishment worked. It says here that girls are having babies just so taxpayers can take care of them. Now, the temptation to evaluate and respond was strong, but the student kept on. She recognized the woman was feeling annoyed because she valued responsible use of her tax money, and she didn't feel she was getting it. So she tried, so you're feeling exasperated because you'd like your tax money to be used for other purposes, is that right? It certainly is, the co-worker said. Do you know that my son and his wife want a second child, but they can't because it costs so much? It sounds like you're sad about that, the student offered. You'd like to have a second grandchild. And at this point, the student sensed something in her co-worker release. Yes, I would, she said, as a moment of silence elapsed. And the student felt surprised to discover that while she still wanted to express her own views, the tension had dissipated. She felt empathetic, not adversarial. And it was then time to get curious about herself, what she was feeling and needing. You know, the student said at last, when you first said that we should bring back the stigma of illegitimacy, I felt really scared because it, it matters to me that all of us here care deeply for people who need help. Some people who come here for food are teenage parents, and I want to be sure that they feel welcomed and cared for. Would you mind telling me how you feel when you see our unmarried teen clients come in, like Amy or Deshaul? And Rosenberg then writes that the conversation continued with several more exchanges until the student felt reassurance that her coworker did indeed offer caring and respectful help to their unmarried clients and learned over the course of the encounter that she could, in fact, disagree with someone in a way that met her need for honesty and mutual respect. Both of them felt heard. Both of them felt understood. Both of them felt loved and it opened a pathway for growth and transformation. Love one another with the sincere love of brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul writes. Outdo one another, not in shows of power, but in shows of respect. Look on the needs of others as though they were your own and be generous in offering hospitality. Megan Phelps Roper, Marshall Rosenberg, the Apostle Paul, they all invite us to ask the same question. What if we were to look at our opponents, at Republicans or Democrats, at anti-mask advocates or advocates for family separation, at our mother or father? What if we were to look at ourselves, not as right or wrong to be judged, but as growing children? reacting to unmet needs and unheard feelings. Who would we be? Rather than judgment, what if we looked at that which we don't like 
with curiosity. Curiosity that gives birth to understanding. And understanding which gives birth to empathy. And empathy which gives birth to love. And love which clears the path to transformation. Is this not, after all, how God looks at you? In the light of these questions, may the darkness of judgment give way, and may we learn to love a new world into being. Amen.
When you're out there floundering Like a lighthouse I will shine Be more kind, my friends Try to be more kind Like a beacon reaching out to you And yours from me to mine Be more kind, my friends Try to be more kind In a world that has decided That it's going to lose its mind Be more kind, my friends Try to be more kind Thank you.